Hola. Hello. Bienvenidos a Entredo. A podcast about waiting bilingual children. I do like to read with my mama. I've spoken to so many parents who talk to me about the constant stress of keeping the language going. And I'm hoping that, I guess, whether, whether we can try and and relax that a bit, make make parents feel a bit more relaxed about their approach to bilingualism. I'm Monica. And I'm Paula. Welcome to Entre Dos. A podcast about raising bilingual children. Questioning whether you're doing enough to pass on a language to your children is an experience we, and maybe you, can relate to. But parenting bilingual children shouldn't be too stressful, as we learn from Sabine Little, who you heard at the opening of this episode. Sabine is a language education lecturer and researcher at the University of Sheffield. Her research focuses on heritage language learners and identity, and how families who speak multiple languages navigate those languages. In this episode, Sabine also talked to us about the deep emotional connection that some parents feel to passing on their language to their children, a connection that not every family member may share. Here's our conversation. So first of all, welcome to the show, Sabine. Thank you so much for for agreeing to to join us today. Um, first, we we wanted to ask you a little bit about your work, and it uh, your research mainly focuses on heritage language and its relation to identity. Can you tell us a bit about why that was interesting to you? Sure. Thanks so much for having me. My research, I originally worked in language acquisition, particularly at school, so second language acquisition. And then I had a bit of a career break, which was actually when I had my own son, who is growing up bilingual English-German. And when it got back to working back at university, I realised that actually my interests had shifted. And funnily enough, I was much more interested in language acquisition and children, particularly multilingual families. And the more families I spoke to, the more there seemed to be this inherent worry of doing it wrong, of not just passing on the language, but having to pass on culture as well. And how would that impact on the child's sense of identity? And I think there was just so much worry and strife and sometimes in family arguments that I decided I would really like to focus my work on this because it seems that, well, I'm hoping that it will be helpful to a lot of families. Yes, it's interesting that you say that because when when we read your research study, the whose heritage, what inheritance, conceptualizing family mm. language identity, we we really saw ourselves and our families <laughs> in your findings and and your research questions. And one of the things that we really could relate to was the sort of the, the length that families will go, you know, to support that heritage language. And and based on your research, why do you think families have this need to pass on this heritage language? And if if was there a common thread among the motivations between, you know, their efforts? I think that's that's a really important question, and that is what I'm carrying on doing work on. So the paper that you're mentioning about who's inherited, who's heritage, what inheritance, um, that focuses on trying to identify the reasons why. 
And what I found was that some families or some parents, I have to say, even though it might sound like a stereotype, it is typically the mothers, but not always, have a very strong emotional need and emotional attachment to language as part of their identity. And so I've spoken to families where the parent says, I feel if my child is rejecting the language, they're rejecting me. So they take language rejection very, very personally. I've spoken to other families or maybe partners of of these parents who don't have that kind of emotional attachment, or at least not as strongly. It's not quite part of their sense of identity. It's more, oh, it would be nice if my child were to learn the language. But if it's not perfect, that's that's fine. As, As long as they're happy, I don't really mind. And it is largely in families where there is a discrepancy in how parents and parents and children, because I do work with children as well, view this. If everybody has got that strong emotional link, then then everything's hunky-dory. You know, everybody is working along the same goals. But if one parent has this strong emotional connection or emotional need and others, the other parent does not or the child does not, that is usually where arguments might come or just just general stress levels. I've spoken to so many parents who talk to me about the constant stress of keeping the language going. One of my master's students did a study um, where one of the parents, every night I go to bed, I wonder whether I have done enough or whether I should do more. And I'm hoping that with my work, we can, I guess, whether, whether we can try and and relax that a bit, make make parents feel a bit more relaxed about their approach to bilingualism to resolve some of those stress issues before they become genuine family issues that impact on ways families live together. You you talk and you just mentioned it that some of the ties or some of the motivations are emotional and others not so much. Is there something in those families in which types of families? were the ties or the motivations more emotional than pragmatic? Was there something that you found there or is it kind of random? It so far seems to be quite random. I mean, there are obviously families where the heritage language is used for religious purposes, for prey, for example. Right. And there, there is there is a strong spiritual connection to the heritage language. But outside of this, it is it is often something that is individual to the person rather than the nationality or the story behind the person. And something else that I've found is that actually sometimes this emotional connection doesn't become known until the child is born. So if somebody moves to another country, meets somebody in that country who doesn't speak their language, but they're rubbing along just fine, they start a relationship in, say, English for argument's sake, and they get married, they fall pregnant, and they have a child. And suddenly there is this, right, but but my child will speak my language. And again, I'm trying to see all members of the family to, to try and take a step back and say, absolutely fair enough. But do you understand that maybe that might come as a surprise to the partner if, <laughs> if language hasn't up to then been something that has been discussed in the partnership? Right. And I'm nodding my my head because <laughs> Me too. I can relate. It hasn't caused the issues. My husband's very much on board. He feels very proud of my daughter's bilingualism. But 
I don't even though I my with my family I still speak in Spanish. Um, I don't think I felt as passionately about Spanish as I did after having lived in the U.S. for about 15, more than 15 years now. I don't think I felt as passionately about Spanish as I did when my daughter was born. <laughs> it just gave rise to all these new emotions about the language, so I can relate completely. Hmm. No, I was going to say my, my husband doesn't mind me using our own family as an example because I, I have to admit I do not necessarily have that strong an emotional connection myself. So on my own research framework, I would not class myself in that strong emotional need. And it almost feels like a disqualifier. But um, when I when I got married, I said to my husband, who doesn't speak a word of German, that if if we ever have a child, you know, that that child will learn German. So that was fair warning. And and he said, yes, I will, of course, I will learn German. That'll be fine. And then we fell pregnant. And I said, you know, we're, we're on a clock now. We've got nine months. These things take roughly nine months. And he said, yes, yes, I'll learn it. I'll learn it. Our son is now 11. My husband still doesn't speak German. Um, <laughs> so we had to find new ways of, of working at home with the heritage language that sometimes excludes my husband, sometimes includes my husband, but is a much more fluid uh, way of living together with multiple languages than those families where both parents speak all the different family languages. You've mentioned it throughout the conversation and also in your study, you talk also about, you know, tensions yes. and rifts that that come about in families in relation to the heritage language. And that was interesting to me because it made me think of a recent exchange I had with my six-year-old who had been speaking more English than usual to me. And when I asked her to speak in Spanish, she just shot back with, well, I can choose what language to speak in because you understand both Spanish mm -hmm. and English. And you present a similar exchange in your paper between a French mother and her six-year-old son. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you think causes these attitudes among children. Um, yeah, sure. You talk about several kind of feelings that they, even at their young age, already have about their having two languages. Sure. So I, I think there are a number of things that come into this. So the age of five, six, seven, pretty much depending on when school start falls or formal education falls in a particular country, is when children leave the home, they, they go out to a different environment, normally one, unless they're in a bilingual education program, that is dominated by the societal language. So they go there and up to then, maybe growing up bilingual was just status quo, it was just the done thing. And suddenly they encounter lots of other children. They go, actually, not, not everybody's growing up like me. So why am I growing up this way? And many families that I'm talking to, the children are saying that they're suddenly realizing, hang on, they've got to do twice the work. That's, that's one thing. But the other thing is that with our increasing understanding of bilingualism, we know now that bilingualism isn't one pot of English and one pot of Spanish, and the two are not together but that most bilinguals make use of what, what is now called the full linguistic repertoire. They dip in and out of languages. They, they might throw in one word or sentences or change things depending on who they're talking to. And to develop that kind of competence actually needs practice. So I would say what, what your child is doing at that point is 
working out, okay, so actually I can talk to mummy in, in two languages and both are okay. So at that point, when the, the actual necessity is questioned, there is then maybe an opportunity to work with children and say, okay, yes, absolutely, we, we can talk in two languages. I would prefer that you speak to me in Spanish and here's why rather than which some parents do, you know, maybe refusing to answer or um, because those are the moments when when it does become confrontational. And I think that is what we're all trying to avoid. I can see that. Yeah, there and there are parents who are like, no, we're only speaking in this language, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I feel like I've relaxed as a result of doing this podcast. And I think maybe Monica agrees, too. We've definitely relaxed a little bit in terms right. of of just you know the switching the mixing the fact that maybe one day they just choose to speak english all day but the next day they're back to spanish um so it's you know we really like we said at the beginning we really related to to, to this research <laughs> right well, one of the things that 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 we have realized as we speak to experts in this field is that communication is about understanding, right? And our children yeah. will find a way to be understood. And part of that is using, you know, that repertoire, right, of both languages and, and finding the best way to use that in order to be understood. And we as parents have to make them feel understood. So that that is a big part of it, right? So if you create this sort of tension constantly where you're forcing the child to do what you want them to do <laughs> when it comes to communication i think it could actually damage right a little bit that that um that 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 effort to get them to use the minority language absolutely and i think again i'm i'm always very careful to say you know whatever one family does will not necessarily fit with another family that is why i'm very wary of of say discussions on Facebook or social media where people give two, three lines introductions to their family and saying, what should I do? And <laughs> people are very ready to do this. And it doesn't work that way because, I mean, I, I, I'm going to hold up my hands and say when my son was four and when he started preschool here in the UK, he came home and I was the only parent who spoke German to him. And I was also the main parent who would practice with him learning to read in English. And he came home fairly quickly uh, in reception year and said, Mummy, I'm getting confused. Um, and we'd take a year out of speaking German. And he was very mm -hmm. serious about it. And I thought it was very interesting that he asked for a year out rather than rejecting German out, outright. And I said, yes. And at that point, you know, I, 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 I obviously knew full well what I was doing, that I was barring his opportunities to, to growing up bilingual at that point. And I was just not that confrontational. I decided I would rather work with my child than against my child. When he was five, he he himself remembered and he said, actually, I want another year out because I'm not a confident reader yet in English. And at that point, I thought that was, that was the German down the drain. I really thought that that was it. But when he was six, he came up and he said, now I'm ready. And it wow. was absolutely fascinating because Um, at the time, I was actually working on the study that, that you've, you've read. And my son knew about it because I kept coming home and talking about families that I'd spoken to. And he said, Mommy, I want to do research. And I said, well, okay, 
But if if you want to do research, we have to do this properly. So we put in for, for ethical approval for a study. And for two and a half years, we documented with him as genuine co-researcher, our return of bringing German back into our lives. And as part of that, uh, we had an awful lot of conversations because he was getting frustrated. He thought he would just pick up his German. In his mind, he still spoke German. And after two years of not speaking it, he suddenly realized that actually he had unlearned almost every single word. So we, we chronicled how it came back and what he did and how he felt and how I felt. We had incredibly frustrating moments that throughout all of it, we did it together. So we never had arguments against each other. And that meant that the German in and of itself was never the bone of contention. It was me supporting him in his own endeavor of, of trying to learn this language that he thought he had a grasp on. Now, uh, that was obviously a very risky undertaking. And as I'm saying, I'm not, I'm not saying everybody should, should adopt that, but he is 11 years old. His spoken German is, is pretty good. You know, he's, he's pretty bilingual as they go. He makes the occasional grammatical error. His reading age is maybe a couple of years behind in German. Uh, so overall, I don't think he's that dissimilar from, from other kids where the parents have pushed. Um, some of them, obviously, because no, no two families are the same. But this is just to show that there are genuinely very, very different routes towards child bilingualism. That's an amazing story and very mature of him at that age to kind of have that self-awareness about how it was the other language was confusing him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to, you know, it was it was the classical period of child start school, child encounters societal language in more detail, um, suddenly has to learn to read. And I think it was literally because, you know, we would have a conversation in German about reading in English and he just went, whoa, you know, I can't, I can't hack this. I can't do this. Um, but I, it really, really depends. I know that there are parents who, who feel that if they let go, their child will not end up bilingual. And I will not say, because they might come back to me in 10 years' time, go, I let go, and my child is now not bilingual. Um, <laughs> um, but just to show that if you do let up a little bit, then the, the world will probably not end, or at least not immediately. And, and you know, you're talking about uh, reading and, and, you know, and, and sort of this bilingual skills when it comes to reading by literate skills. Yeah. Um, and something that our listeners um, talk to talk about a lot, and we talk about a lot are, are books, mm -hmm. because books feel like they are even when you decide, let's say to let go of a particular language for a specific period of time, they still feel like they're a bridge to the language and something that is particularly with younger children is a space they create a space where you can use that language in a way that is not pushy maybe mm -hmm. where you don't have to do confrontation or anything like that because it's just fun and immersive an immersive experience in any language right and um i know that you have experience with this particular topic because you created the Sheffield Multilingual Library based on the need of families using that bridge to um, 
to connect with their, ch with their children in their heritage language. And I, I really want to hear about um, how that came to be. Sure. So it was actually part of the same study that I asked parents about the kinds of resources that they were using. And actually, the study was aimed at um, apps and games specifically. I was interested in the kind of apps and games that parents are using. But it became very obvious that especially at the younger age range, books were unsurprisingly um, the, the core thing that families did together. That was a shared language experience. And many families that I spoke to, it was a it was a nationwide study. It wasn't just families in Sheffield, but many parents were telling me that access to resources was a problem. So in line with the research uh, or in, in line with my research, I do a lot of public engagement activities. So I arranged for multilingual storytelling sessions to take place on two different occasions. And for the second one, that was scheduled in Sheffield Library. And I asked anybody in the run-up, if you've got any books, just bring them to, to sell um, if you want to. And we can have a little, a little flea market, a little car boot sale of multilingual books. And what happened on that day is that loads of people approached me and said, I'm not staying the whole day, but here are my books. I don't want any money for it. I just want them to go to another good family. And I thought, A, how kind is that? But B, there is obviously a lot of goodwill and an opportunity here to try and make these books available to as many people as possible, rather than relying on some sort of grapevine to pass them on from one family to another. So I approached Sheffield Children's Library, which is the main library in, in Sheffield. It's housed in central libraries. And said, well, what about the idea of having a multilingual collection in the children's library? And there are other multilingual libraries that are independent of the main libraries. And that is great because obviously they can do exactly what they want. Um, for us, I felt it was important that it was housed very centrally, that it's got the whole power of the library behind it and the support. And we called for donations to stock the library because the library essentially um, I don't know what it's like in, in the US, but there are great library cuts happening all over the UK. So they said, well, we can support you with staff and space, but we haven't got funds to create a whole catalogue of multilingual children's books. And I said, OK, well, let's see what, what we can find. And we put out a call to individuals and then authors and illustrators and publishers jumped on board and donated spare multilingual copies that they had. And out of that, we managed to launch with, I believe it was it was 874 books back in November across 37 languages. And the multilingual library is already becoming a hub. So a new German playgroup is starting in Sheffield that is using the library as a, as a starting point, as a hub to meet. Some of the heritage language schools are en masse walking to the library so that the parents can take out books. And we have a multilingual reading scheme, which is part of another research study funded here by the Art and Humanities Research Council that looks into how families are now using the library and what kind of advantages, disadvantages there are to having one in this country. That's wonderful. And um, it, it is, it is, it's something that we share in in terms of 
trying to have access to books, not just in the language, but also books that reflect the, the heritage culture, mm -hmm. which, you know, when you're talking about identity, um, that serves as a sort of good starting point to start discussions about well, who you are, um, it's not just about a language, right? It's also about this entire culture behind that language and how this type of sort of vehicle, the book, right? The story is a way to, to create that connection. And I can see why um, something like this would be so popular. Um, and, and it's something that here in the U.S., um, we do have access to some literature, you know, but, but it's very difficult to find even now um, books in heritage languages, including languages that are very popular, like Spanish. It's something that a lot of our listeners, you know, are, are dealing with in, in their quest to find mm -hmm. good literature. So it's, it's it, it, something like this would be wonderful to have here. Um, and, and is it, do you have any advice on how to start let's say a similar effort if one of our listeners uh, would want to do that in their community? So I don't know the US library context, the public library context that well, but I would say that trying to work out whether it's something you can do yourself, because obviously if it is a community organized library, somebody has to be there, somebody has to staff it, you need a space right. that is accessible, etc. cetera. Um, if at all possible, I would say, try and go a more public route and try and go with channels that are already established. I know as a result of the work that, that I've been doing, a lot of families have approached their schools to say, can we collect donations from parents to up the multilingual section in the school's library, for example? And that, I think, is, is a great opportunity, particularly in areas where there are strong language communities to make use of the resources that are within the community, but make them then publicly accessible. Like you mentioned, it started as a multilingual story time. And I found that interesting because I think in, in one of your articles, you mentioned that you had a story reading, I believe, every hour or so mm. in a different language, and that you had people staying for the readings in other languages that weren't theirs. And I'm curious to know, how did you organize that? Did you reach out to the community to get native speakers to do the readings? Or can you talk a little bit about that? Because I feel like a story time is something that that is manageable and that perhaps a parent could organize in their community, mm. even if it's not at the library. Absolutely. So again, the the first one, they were both in fairly public spaces. Um, and for the first one, I was lucky enough working at a university of drawing on my own and other PhD students who are very multilingual um, in and of themselves. So the first event, when I wasn't quite sure what I was doing, I just reached out to, to my own students and said, you know, I don't care which language it is, but this is what I want to do. And we had, I think at the first event, six languages for the second one, which did take place in the library, I posted on Facebook. I said, you know, this is this is what we're doing. Do you know anybody in a language? I reached out to community language schools and said, you know, is there anybody there who's willing to engage with this? And I think it was three or four of the sessions were taken by members of the community language schools. Some were taken from people who had worked with me specifically before 
And some were taken by completely random members of the community I'd never met before, but who reached out on Facebook and says, yes, I can do one in Lithuanian. Um, and I said, brilliant. So the thing to to maybe be aware of is that, yes, it is a lot of organization, but we ran it as a very fluid event. It was an incredibly busy day. We had over 200 people in the library and every now and then I would holler through the room and say, Spanish coming up next. Everybody who wants to listen to Spanish, sit down over there. <laughs> it was that sort of chaos, but everybody loved it because I had parents telling me that that was the first time their child had heard the language outside the family context. I had somebody, I had a, a native English speaker come up to me and said, I've never heard, I think it was Bengali before. Um, I, I didn't realise it was such such an interesting language. And because it was all in one space and it was quite fast moving with a different language every hour, or even every half hour, people did just stay and some stayed for two hours or more taking in four or five different languages. That's really cool. <laughs> If anybody is doing this, do let me know because I would love to to hear about this making waves. <laughs> <laughs> well, we encourage we 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 encourage our listeners to do this, particularly in spaces where there's not as an obvious um, heritage language community. Mm -hmm. uh, Paula and I live in places where Spanish is very dominant, both culture and language. Mm -hmm. So we find um, these opportunities a lot more frequently. But we we we've had uh, listeners that that don't have this in their communities and we encourage them to to start groups. And even, you know, I can imagine for the families that participated in this event, you know, e even if it's not their particular heritage language, I mean, they they had to had find a lot of commonality uh, between each other because they're all living sort of a similar experience. And to have your child listen to another kid, even if they don't share the same language, also sort of have interest in in their own heritage language would create sort of like a sense of, yes, there are other people like me. You know, this is this is this is good. This is OK. This 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 is something that that I share with other people, which might be difficult, you know, in communities where you don't get to listen to that language at all. And children pick up on that and they're smart and they're like, well, if no one's speaking this, then, you know, for my own preservation, I just can't, you know, I have to continue with the majority mm -hmm. language. It makes perfect sense for them to do this. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that is really, really important. And I think it is, as you say, it's about normalizing bilingualism. So in right. England, we, we have a we have fairly straightforward statistics that in, in primary school at the moment, roughly 20% of children are registered as speaking English as an additional language. Now, that doesn't necessarily capture children like my son, who is down as an English native speaker, but just happens to be bilingual. So there is actually a large percentage of families in the UK and obviously in, in the US and everywhere else um, who are growing up bilingual. But quite often the way the education system works, that bilingualism isn't really represented in the curriculum, in education policy. So being bilingual is kind of an add-on. And as you say, whether the child who is bilingual speaks the same language as you or another language doesn't really matter. At the last storytelling event, which coincided, that was the third one, actually, that coincided 
with the opening of the library, my son read a story in German rather than me. And for kids to see that and to have another child who is obviously bilingual, make not a big deal out of it, but being shown that, yes, it's fine, it's in public, it's cool. Um, hopefully, that ends up inspiring some other kids to be a bit more public about their bilingualism and normalising the fact. Whereas I've also spoken to families where the child has been at a school for six years and none of the teachers knew that this child was bilingual. That's a big problem here, too, with um. The, the lack of dual language programs and the lack of support for heritage language speakers. A lot of what, what essentially schools do here is they move, if, if a child comes in with a heritage language that is dominant, which is usually the case if they haven't been to preschool, for instance, if they enter into the, the public school system, the um, it starts at pre-K, which is about four years old, they put them into something that's called English as a second mm -hmm. language. And it's a program that's, that's built to essentially sort of teach them English and then sort of move them into the general population after that. So it's not meant to preserve the heritage language. Yeah, absolutely. I think as far as most education systems are concerned, not all of them, but most, a child bilingualism is, or a child having another language is only interesting up to the point that they have caught up with a societal language. So it is this normally English as an additional language operates in many schools as a deficit system. Bilingualism is only of interest until the English is good enough to follow the curriculum, at which point the other language is, is pretty much no longer of particular interest, unless, as you say, they are part of a community uh, with a strong multilingual um, cohort or group of people. And we've just completed a study where we talk to teachers and there are some amazing cases where schools or teachers go all out to facilitate multilingualism in schools. But again, it's sad that we talk about that as amazing and groundbreaking when what we're hoping for it to do is for that to become the status quo and for that to be normalized. Thank you, Sabine, for joining us on Entre Dos. You can find out more about Sabine and the study we talked about on our website, entredospodcast.com. Please join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Entre Dos Podcast to continue the conversation. And if you enjoy our show, please, please rate and review us and tell your friends to give us a listen. Hasta la próxima. Nos vemos.